Okay, if you want to turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 7, we're going to be talking about law and grace. This is going to be the last message for the Ten Commandments series, uh, discussing the balancing point between these two uh, great doctrines of our faith. About 14 years ago, I was driving to work when I got a phone call that they had a critical care transport coming out of a local hospital, and they needed me to handle it because I was the only one that was trained at that time to run the ventilator, and the helicopters weren't flying, so they said I had to hurry up and get to the hospital. Now I'm going down some back county highway in Kenosha County and figured I'd be okay to speed a little bit, but sure enough, I pass this line of trees, and as I pass it, I see out of the corner of my eye, gosh, that looked like a police cruiser right there. And sure enough, my rearview mirror, blue lights. I get pulled over, and this deputy comes up and looks at me, and I look at him, and I see a training badge on, and he looks like he's about 14 years old, and he says, license and registration. I said, you know, I said, I, you know, officer, I know I was speeding. I said, I'm a paramedic, I'm in uniform, I'm going to a call, here's my dispatcher's number, you can call and verify, the county also knows about it, you can call the county dispatch and verify, and, and just let them know that I'm actually on my way to a call. He said, okay, well, I'll check on that. Goes back to the car, comes back a couple minutes later, hands me a ticket. And the guy standing behind him, his training officer, his name's Jim. I've known Jim for years. I look at Jim and I'm like, really? You're giving me a ticket? I'm on my way to a call. He said, well, the problem, sir, is that you are not registered as an emergency vehicle. You are not in an emergency vehicle right now. Even if you were in an emergency vehicle, you do not have your lights and your flashers on. And the law says that if you are responding to a call and exceeding the speed limit, your lights and siren must be on at all times. And I look at Jim and I'm like, really, Jim? I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't have a light siren in my car. I don't want to pay that kind of insurance. And he goes, well, John, it's... That's the law, and I can't argue with them on that. And so just take it to the DA and see if you can get it pleaded down when you, you know, take it to court. And, you know, so I'm just sitting there thinking about it on the way there. It's like, you know, why couldn't this guy just give me a little bit of professional courtesy? I mean, we're both on the same side and, and all this kind of stuff, and I could just feel the Holy Spirit saying, you know, you kind of actually deserve that ticket. I mean, you were speeding. <laughs> I mean, I wanted this, this idea of professional courtesy, but the law was plain in that circumstance. I was speeding. I did not have a right to speed, you know, but I still wanted that professional courtesy. In our context, professional courtesy is called grace. And over the last several weeks, we focused on God's law as found in the Ten Commandments. And today we're going to balance those scales a bit by talking about the law's relationship with grace. And during the time of the early church, one of the greatest authorities of the Old Testament law was the Apostle Paul. Paul studied under the greatest Bible teacher of his time, which was a rabbi named Gamaliel. Gamaliel's Torah school was like wrapping Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Oxford and putting it into one school and one academy. If you graduated from this school, your career ticket was written. In fact, Paul was one of the youngest people ever to be appointed to the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin were like getting elected to Congress, elected to the Senate, and appointed to the Supreme Court all at the same time. So Paul was a fanatic when it came to the law of God. 
Paul wrote the church of Philippi that when it came to the legalistic following of this law, he was absolutely uh, faultless. Imagine that. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament that a Jewish person had to follow. Broken up into 35 different subjects. But Paul executed those laws perfectly. He said, when it came to legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. But do you know, after he met Jesus, what he said about his ability to follow the law so perfectly? He said, I count it all as refuse. A literal translation would say, all I did amounted to a pile of manure. That's what he thought about following the law and trusting in the law to make himself pleasing to God. Because he had discovered a better way. He had discovered God's original purpose for humanity. And today we're going to read about the law versus grace. We're going to start off in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV today if it doesn't quite match the Bibles and the pews. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, what I, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Let's pray. Father God, we just ask, Lord, that you just take this scripture this morning and help us to understand the tension that exists between law and grace, between holiness and lasciviousness, between walking with you the way you want us to walk and being legalistic and just trusting in a form of religion but denying the power of the cross. Father, help us to walk that tightrope today and walk away from here with a better understanding of who you really are and what your plan of salvation really is. And Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. Historically, in the Assemblies of God, we have probably been a fellowship that leans more toward a holiness bent. In other words, we have a tendency to trust our salvation and trust our relationship with God on the ability to follow the rules in the Bible and probably, if we're quite honest with each other, a couple of extra rules that aren't found in the Bible because we want to make ourselves pleasing to God. In the pursuit of holiness, though, sometimes we strain out a gnat in the law and we swallow the camel of religious pride. 
The problem with, with, with running after God in a legalistic way is that we can never live up to the expectations of the law. The law judges our thoughts and attitudes of our heart and also judges our actions. It does both. And that is why Paul, a person who followed the law perfectly, was saying that all the religious observance that he did, all the sacrifice that he had fit, placed his faith in, was nothing but a pile of manure. Because he finally understood that even with all that external obedience over his actions, that his heart was never touched by the law. His heart was not right before God. That is because Paul, before he met Jesus, missed that point of the law. But let's look at what the law does. What the law does is the law exposes. The law is like an answer key to a multiple choice test. You remember those tests in school, uh, or maybe the tests that your kids had? They would be the multiple choice ones. You'd fill in the answer, like a, a letter, circle a letter, those kind of things. And then you'd go turn it into the teacher, and the teacher would have the answer key. And she'd take the answer key and she'd put it over the top of the test and she'd be able to see exactly which ones you marked wrong and the red pen would come out and you'd be like, check, 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 all those wrong answers. Well, that's what the law is for us. They held up, the teacher would hold up the standard and use it to judge when you failed. And you remember standing around the teacher's test waiting for your quiz to be graded? See that guy or girl that you didn't like turning their test right before you and the teacher wears out the red pen on their test, how that would make you feel? You'd be like, <laughs> yeah, they got it all wrong. Anybody get a little bit of a grin with that? There's something within our fallen human nature that loves when other people also fail to measure up. Friday I looked at Fox News, Drudge Report, and CNN, and these were some of the headlines. And I'm not going to include the political stuff, and I'm not naming the people involved. These are just some of the headlines about people failing. Female teacher seduces the boys in her school. Famous star fights to prevent the release of another sex tape. Another famous Hollywood couple are divorcing. And a politician caught accepting illegal campaign contributions. Those are just four of the headli top headlines of this of Friday. And walking through the store the other day, I counted seven different publications on the, cell, on the shelves dealing with famous people's failures and scandals. And part of our fallen condition is to be fascinated by other people's failures, and not necessarily our own. We like it when other people fail. When I was working my first paramedic job, you're one of the rookies. You don't get to decide what we're eating, you don't get to decide what's on TV or anything else. And so one of the mainstays of that particular station I was in was that every single day the Jerry Springer show had to be watched. Now I don't know if you know what the Jerry Springer show is, but Jerry Springer show finds people, how we should nicely say this, they're on the lower end of the educational, social, and economic scales. And they would have the most interesting unique and troublesome social problems and Jerry Springer gets them on his show essentially has them pick a fight and they box and fight and scream and shout and cuss and and, and everything else at each other all for our amusement it shows us the worst of people that's what the Jerry Springer show is 
And it's not just a recent phenomenon. We think that this is just something within our culture. In fact, the Bible records a similar event that happened very early in the historical record. In Genesis chapter 9, Noah lives through the flood and has now left the ark. He goes out and starts rebuilding society. He begins with planting his own yarn or his own farm, excuse me, which includes a vineyard. Noah harvests some grapes, makes some wine, has a bit too much of it, and ends up drunk in his tent naked. Now this is already starting to sound like an episode of the Jerry Springer show right here. Noah would have been a guest. His son Ham comes in, and he sees Noah laying there snoring on the floor. Ham said, well, that's not kosher. And he has a chuckle on it at his dad's expense, and even going out and told his brothers about it. Tammy was the only one that got that joke. If that were today, he would have snapped a picture of it and posted it on social media. It would have gone viral, it would have been on the news, all the gossip channels, and it would have been made famous. And why was that funny or embarrassing? Because Noah did something that was not socially acceptable at his time or within the law of God. He was both naked and drunk in his tent. Neither one were acceptable uh, biblically or socially at this time. And Ham used that law to expose his father's sin for his own enjoyment. And we really don't know why Ham did this. I don't know why Ham disrespected his father like this. Maybe it was because he was the second son. Maybe he felt that he wasn't the favored one. Maybe he had the bad job on the ark. Maybe he was on manure duty. Imagine that job. Every animal on earth. Species on earth, and you have to pick all that stuff up. Maybe he felt that this was his chance to get one up on his dad for being so strict with them. But either way, he felt justified in what he was doing. He used the law to expose his father's sin. And Noah woke up, and he discovered what Ham did, and pronounced a curse upon Ham and his son. And I have no doubt that Ham was filled with regret after everything was done, and he's thinking, why was I such an idiot? Why did I have to curse my father? If it wasn't for him, I'd be fish food right now. And my whole family now has to live under a curse because I was an idiot. And that fits in with the scripture we read at the beginning of the message. To paraphrase that scripture from Romans, it said, I did not do, or I did not want to do what I did, but I still felt compelled to do it. How many of you have been there? There is something there that you did not want to do, but you just had this compulsion to do it, knowing it was wrong. I have. I have been there again and again and again and again. But that's the law's job, to show us where we failed. Just like that police officer with the ticket said, this is the black and white law and I'm going to follow it because that's my job is to be a police officer and to enforce the law. We're not going to grade on the curve. You're not going to get special treatment because you have a paramedic patch on. And we're definitely not going to compare you to somebody else that might have been speeding even worse. The law is the law, and you deserve the ticket. And besides, if we're going to compare ourselves to others, we have to include Jesus on that, and he blows the curve right out of the water. You live up to the law or you fail. And the Bible says if you fail at any point in the law, you're guilty of breaking all the law because the consequence is the same. Eternal separation from God and hell. 
But what the law exposes, grace covers. In the story we were talking about in Genesis chapter 9, there are two other sons of Noah named Shem and Japheth. Imagine they're working out in the field, and here comes Ham with a big grin on his face. Hey, bros. Hey, you know who the Mr. Holy Roller Father is? Mr. I'm man of God, and, and God's used me. I'm a prophet, and you have to listen to me. Go build an ark. You know that guy made us sit in a boat for a whole year and put me on manure duty? You know where he's at right now? He's stinking drunk, laying naked in his, in his tent. You should come and see. Get a good laugh off of, it, off of this. And I would imagine Shem may have walked up to the tent, smelled the wine, hears the snoring, understands what exactly Ham was saying, and he immediately turns aside, draws Japheth aside and said, Japheth, go to my tent, get my best robe and bring it back. And him, Shem and Japheth, walk backwards, averting their eyes from their father's sin and cover him. That's what grace does. Grace covers what the law exposes. In one of his books, Max Lucado talks about the time that a bank sent him an overdraft notice on the checking account for one of his daughters. And he told them, he goes, you know, I trained my daughters how to manage their finances. I told them, balance your checkbook. Make sure that you have enough money in, your, in the account before you write another check. And they kept just going over and over and over again and overspending. And, and he asked himself when he got this, you know, another notice that they had overdrawn. And he asked himself, what should I do? Should I call her or send her an angry letter? Should I admonish her and, and yell at her a little bit? He goes, but if I do that, that's not going to satisfy the bank. Shall I phone her and tell her to make a deposit? He goes, well, I know she doesn't have any money. She can't possibly make her own deposit. What should I do? And he said, the only thing I could come up with is transferring some money from my account to hers. And that seemed to be the best option. He goes, I could replenish her account and pay the overdraft fee as well. Since she calls me dad, that's what dads do. Dads cover daughter's mistakes. When he told her that she was overdrawn, she said she was sorry, but still she was unable to offer any deposit. She was broke. She said one option, and in tears she asked, Dad, could you? And before he before she even got it out of her mouth, her dad said, Honey, I already have. He met her need before she knew she had one. And if you are a parent here, you've probably done that more than once to help your child. I know we've done that for our children. Tammy's parents have done that for us occasionally. But that's what grace does. It covers our failures. And that's exactly what God did through Jesus Christ. Long before we knew we needed grace, he made an ample deposit for us. Before we knew we needed a Savior, we already had one. And before we had to ask him for mercy, he answers, Dear child, I have already given it to you. That's what the cross is all about. It was about God paying our sin debt even before we knew we were in trouble. That's grace. And you see, law and grace are not just two opposite sides of the same God. What law and grace show us is a complete revelation of who God is. 
A father that makes sure his child's debt was paid even before they needed it. A God that knows that he is so big, so awesome, and so holy, there is no possible way he can give humanity free will without paying for the consequences of that free will. If we would just choose to accept it. Now the law exposes and grace covers, but Jesus transforms. The original struggle Paul talked about in Romans, that the good he wanted to do, he couldn't do, and instead did the evil he didn't want to do, is a struggle that you and I all face. Particularly when we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament and we look at the law like we have in our Ten Commandments series. And the law exposes that struggle to us every day. And grace covers the sin that produces it. But God just doesn't want to leave you there in a constant cycle of sin and failure. God wants you to be transformed. When I was in the army, I was a platoon or a squad leader at the time, and I got a call from my platoon sergeant to go pick up one of my guys at the Provo Marshal's office. Apparently, he had gotten picked up at the PX or something, and he was sitting in a jail cell. So he said, "Well, you're the squad leader. You have to go take care of this." I said, "Okay." I grabbed a Humvee and went down to see what was going on. Now, this kid I was picking up, this is a farm kid from Iowa. I kid you not. He had never, ever even been outside the county that he lived in before he entered the military. I mean, when we talked about a guy with no experience and, and no outside, had any idea what was going on in the outside world, this was him. He had never been off the farm, really. So I went down to see what was going on. I talked to the MPs, and they said he'd been caught writing bad checks at the PX and now owed over $1,000 in bounce checks and fees and, and stuff that he wrote checks for. And they're going to release them to me as long as I put them on barracks restriction. I said, okay, I picked them up on the way back. I said, you understand, Private, you are now facing criminal charges. You're definitely going to end up with a field grade Article 15. That's where you have to go up and see the bird colonel, the one right underneath the general, and, and get an Article 15 from him, which is a pretty big deal. I said, that's the best case scenario. I said, you're most likely with a thousand dollars owed going to be sent to a court martial. I said, so you're in a lot of trouble here. What were you thinking? I mean, you just started out in the army. You just graduated from AIT and now you're facing a court martial. I mean, you move fast here. And he said, Sergeant Oscar, I, I, I don't understand. I still had checks in my checkbook. So I should be okay, right? I mean, I don't understand why the bank issued me all these checks if, I, if they're not going to cover them. Nobody had ever told him how to balance a checkbook. He's, and yeah, he was that immature and ignorant of how finances work. But a lot of us treat God like this. We treat God like he's a being with a checkbook that never runs out to pay for our mistakes. And that is true to a point. But even though God's grace covers us and the blood of Jesus never runs dry, God wants, doesn't want to keep writing checks. He wants to change us from the inside out. Amen. And Jesus came to do just that. And how does Jesus transform us? You see a glimpse of it in John chapter 6. Jesus was getting into one of his famous arguments with the religious leaders of his time, and he makes a very incredible statement. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 51, this is a really long chapter of John. 
He says, I am the living bread that came from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give will be for the life of the the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life within you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I will live because of the Father who feeds on me. He will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Think about what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here was highly, highly controversial to the people he was talking to. The blood of the sacrifice was sacred. They were not allowed to eat meat with blood in it. They were not even allowed to touch the blood unless you were a priest doing priestly duties. Jesus is saying here that you are actually to feed on him. He's saying, I want to enter you. I want to change you. I want every moment of every day focused on me. He's saying, I want you to be so intimate with me that you actually draw from my power, that you actually draw from my love, that you actually draw from my grace so that you can live a life that matters for the kingdom. Not a person so focused on the law that they forget how to love. Not a person so enamored with grace that they forget to pursue holiness through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But a person who is so lost in Jesus that when people look at you, that's all they see is a son of God living his life through you. And that's why Jesus is the perfect balance between law and and grace. Jesus said, whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood has life. And we're going to end this morning by celebrating communion as a church family.